there's tons of stuff I would do differently now. I'd make a very different game. Like, for example, I would not want the ability to repair to reset the game. Essentially, let's say both ships get damaged, you both fully repair, the only thing that's changed is the whole damage, right? Yeah. Um, yeah and right. so I hate that now. Um, huh. It just feels like... Um, What's the point of the combat? Yeah, there's, there's no... I don't know, it feels like I'm doing the same thing over and over again, like I'm in purgatory. Um, yes, right. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to independent game developer Justin Ma, best known for his work on FTL and Into the Breach. This episode was recorded on March 24th, 2022, and it was engineered by Michael Hermes. How I usually like to start is, yeah. what's, what's the first video game that you remember? Gosh, uh, I have a notoriously bad memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember teachers, friends, what I did, anything. But... Um, Maybe the most impactful would be Pitfall. Okay. Um, um, in the arcade version. Um, oh, okay. The <clears throat> my father worked in games since I was very young, and he worked at Activision at that time. Oh, really? And okay. I, I don't know if it's a memory or just a photo I saw. Right. But uh, playing Pac-Man and the sound effects of that was sorry, not Pac-Man. Uh, Pitfall was pretty impactful. Um, Wow. Okay. So you were you grew up in the Bay Area, and he was working for Activision. Yeah, area, I grew basically. up in Mountain View. Worked okay. for Activision. He then um, um, eventually we went to the East Coast, and he worked at Acclaim. Um, okay. And you know, the wow. I think I think I think this might actually be a first for designer notes. I think this you might yeah. be the first person I've talked to whose like parent worked in the video games industry. So. Yeah, I. I definitely grew up around games without them being uh, a complete mystery of how they're made. Like yeah. um, when I was relatively young, I'd go to my dad's office and like, you know, poke around and play dev builds and get, you know, mm. uh, watched a, over by people. Was he a programmer or an artist or a... Total biz dev. So he biz had no okay. interest in games. He's um. Oh, really? So he could have been working for a ice cream company? Previously, he was working for an oil company. Okay. And then he got brought in for... Um, you know, managing, uh, the word is escaping me. Sorry, English. It's been a while since I talked okay. a lot, so my English is kind of <laughs> like faltering. Um, yeah, he worked, I'll say, uh, management of uh, stuff. Eventually, he did a lot of like manufacturing stuff and dealing with distribution and, um, you know, GameStop and all that sort of side. He had very little to do with the actual games themselves and, Honestly, didn't know or care that much other right. than, like, you know, marketing speak. Um, but still, he would, like, it was an amazingly um, fun position to have as a kid in that time, to sure. have a dad bring back, like, a, a dev build of, of Mortal Kombat and then, like, show it to friends or whatever of, like, stuff that's all broken and, and, and whatnot. And so... Um, it was really fun growing up at the same time that my mom, on the other hand, like hated video games. Oh, really? At okay. least hated the fact that we played them. Okay. Um, and so it was this constant battle. What did she hate about them? 
Maybe just simply how much we spent time in it. Right. Um, but it was, was it was video games like the main thing you would do basically? So uh, we moved from San Francisco to Long Island, New York, yeah. and the culture of Long Island did not match well with us, either one of us. So my brother, who's two years older, and I would spend a lot of time playing games, and um, I think that didn't set well with her too much, um, just how much we'd spend inside or whatnot. Um, but so, you know, growing up, I was born in 1985, for uh -huh. reference. Um, so like early 90s, you know, time limits on how much time you spend on games. We had this whole check-in system of like, she had like an Excel sheet of all the games that we had and we would put in times for how much we'd play. Wow. Uh, eventually she gave up. Uh, okay. And um, and now that uh, I got, went into games, and my brother went into games initially at first too, um, it was easier you, to justify like, that time. When, during that stage when you're like, I don't know, 10 or whatever, like, yeah. did you think like, I want to make video games? I think... Despite having access to a studio and even interacting with people who work on games, I think at that time the most thing I like directly looked up to was like games press. So I, oh. the the idea would be like you know working on you know Nintendo Power or EGM at that time huh. with my brother or something as the most appealing thing. Why was that? Um, I'm not sure. I, I think I still think that the thought of making games felt too impossible. Right. Or um, I mean, we would still like prototype, not prototype, but like on paper design games for fun, like kids would. Yeah. Um, but still, that didn't seem like something I could do for some reason. I didn't have a particular skill. Right. Where journalism um, is just like, oh, they get a game, they play it, they write about it. Yeah, and it, it's a more direct, um, directly in line with what we were doing, which was talking. Incessant, uh, just nonstop about games and their design and what we like and whatnot. So that made more sense. In college, um, when I was trying to pick majors and stuff, um, the other things I was interested in growing up, like marine biology and science and whatnot, um, struck me as not actually things I, I could go into. <laughs> Yeah, marine biology specifically was way too depressing even at that point. Right. I was like, oh, this is not something I want to do. Right. Um, and it just seemed natural that, okay, I'll probably try to get into games at some point. Um, and every person I talked to through my dad's connections um, said their undergraduate was just, you know, architecture or English lit or anything. Something random. Yeah, yeah and so um, I just majored in something random with the hopes that eventually I'd work in games. And um, where did where did you go to school? I went to Tufts uh, University in Boston, uh -huh. um, liberal arts school, where I majored in East Asian studies, focusing okay. on China. And I primarily did that because uh, I have my father's Chinese, uh -huh. um, my mother is Caucasian mix from California, and so I was kind of interested in like family history background, that sort of stuff, and. Um, Studying Chinese history was super interesting, just inherently to me. Um, and I also did a lot of art-related things, uh, minor and studio art and such. And so I had expected to go into uh, games via art. Um, okay. Just being an artist for some, in some capacity. Is there a reason you did just go for like an art degree? Hmm. 
couldn't say. I think maybe it's the um, American style pressure of you got to get mm-hmm. um, like a proper degree or whatever to get a proper job kind of mindset. Right. It never really occurred to me. It was more of an interest. And, yeah. I, and I, to be honest, looking back, like, uh, I am not an artist, like a traditional like definition of artist. That's not why I make art. It's more simply just kind of fun pastime, like like hobby level um, of what my relationship to art is. And I definitely could not do it professionally. Like if I my job, I could not do concept artist or something. I, I'm just not a not good enough and not passionate enough about it. Right. Uh, which became pretty clear pretty quick um, when I was trying to get a job. Um, okay. Um. Yeah. All right. Well, it's that'd be good to talk about. Actually, but before we do that, I just want to spend a little bit of time on, like, you know, your games have a specific feel, which you know, you know, sometimes they they feel a little retro, and that's maybe because of the art style, right? Can we talk about like what games matter to you the most when you were like a teenager? You know, because those, that's usually very formative. Yeah. Sure. Um, teenager. If that's the right era. I actually didn't play games a lot when I was a teenager. It was before. So, like, whatever the era was that was right, most formative. Mm, yeah, like, most 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 formative might be, you know, the original Legend of Zelda and then, yeah. like, the original Final Fantasy and then... The original Legend of Zelda, right, which came out when you were, like, two, right? So it's still... Yeah, um, but, you know, we got NES way late yep. um, and not really up with the times or anything, and... But that that was like super super formative of of like whoa like this is a whole other world this is like an experience that is more meaningful to me than most things that happen in my normal life. Right. What um, what, what is it that you liked so much about the game? Like that. Then go ahead. You... Uh, it's hard. It's hard to pinpoint what drew me to it. I think. I think it's the potential and of of what this could mean like it the fact that it sparks your imagination so deeply the fact that um there's challenge involved in a way that is controlled and safe and makes you feel like you're getting better at something that matters um you know psychology tricks or not i don't know but i think what draws me to games in general is like it's a whole bunch of rules and systems that make sense in their own way. Like other things I'm super, super drawn to are usually systematic things like, you know, in nature, like the way that trees interact with like the the fungi that connect them and all that sort of stuff is super interesting to me, but it's also like unsolvably, unsolvably complicated. Whereas mm-hmm. in games, it's like, this is something that can be fully known and you can start to intuit everything behind it. Why, if that, whether or not that's like why I like Zelda or not, I couldn't sure. say for example. Um, but also like, like Final Fantasy, uh, four slash two in the U S um, like I think, um, the way that a story is told that you get to interact to it resonated with me super, super strongly, even at a younger age, um, more so than uh, TV or books or something. Um, even if it's just an illusion of you, you're interacting with the story for some reason, um, that was super powerful to me. Um, so classic answers like Chrono Trigger, uh, Super Metroid, and then Final Fantasy Tactics going further, Final Fantasy VII. Right. Um, so you were heavily a console player. Yeah, we didn't really have access to a PC. Okay. I guess if you go way back, stuff like uh, Manhole. Yep. 
Mm -hmm. that was that was super impactful or like Oregon Trail or something like that right um did you have access like so manhole was made with hypercard did you have access to that at all or did was there any digital tools that you had access to no um no this I was pretty too young for that or mm -hmm. no one was particularly tech savvy in my family but we did have an apple too I guess um, right and you know I I I I really didn't even know what was going on when I was yeah. playing it, but like that, the sense of atmosphere and space and and like wondering what's around the corner. Yeah, it was so powerful um, for that. In terms of making stuff, um, the first thing I started like poking around at would probably be like mm, not early days, medium days of Flash and stuff. Right. Um, making shmups and whatnot, but. I was never in that PC space of this is a world that I have access to to explore like modding or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, be interesting. It's like one of these paths, right? Like if you had a PC, it'd be yeah. interesting if you would because you know, consoles are totally closed, right? So, yeah, yeah it'd be interesting to know what would have happened. Um, yeah, it was all theoretical for me. It would all just be like doodling and drawing and writing yep. and making maps and whatnot by hand. Yep. Um, so Cool. So, so you went through college then, and you went. You tried to apply for game jobs. Is that what happened? Yeah. Um, I graduated two thousand seven. My wife graduated. At, you, you know, girlfriend then graduated two thousand eight, and the vibe was um, there's no jobs here, and so we moved to China. Mm -hmm. um, although. That was a very minimal planning. We just had a three-month visa and then a couple, you know, a couple thousand dollars saved uh, from other jobs. And um, that's a okay. <laughs> that's a big jump. That was that, I guess that was during the was that during the financial crisis. I right it was. before. Okay. We got we got a whiff of where the direction was going, and especially my wife is like, I don't want to be here. Okay. Um, she's Polish, although she spent a lot of time in the U.S. Uh, as a kid. Right. Um. But yeah, so we moved to China with just a, if we get a job, I guess we'll stay type of mindset. And we stayed there like four and a half years, I think. Right. Um, but did you know Chinese so, at that point? Yeah, I'd studied, we went to Shanghai. I, I had studied abroad in Shanghai. Um, my brother was living in Shanghai. Okay. Um, so you had some connections and had connections. With this. Um, you know, I wasn't fluent or anything, but I, I could get by. And um, again, the, only reason I probably was able to get a job was um, privilege and luck, um, where my father knew um, the head of the studio of 2K Games Shanghai Studio. Okay. So that that at least got me the first interview, which I guess I kind of bombed. Um, interview made, for what? So um, I met with the design lead, and I was kind of of the mindset that, like, I can fill whatever role you kind of need. Um, I knew enough about game design that I made some stuff. I knew enough about art that I can make some stuff. Um, and that's not what they want. What they want, especially in China, and at that time, probably even now, it's like not only are you not hired as a designer, you're hired as a, um, a le you know, level designer in this program only. Yeah. And so they had no need from someone who's not specialized and he was kind of confused by the whole prospect, prospect it seemed like, yeah. um, of someone who doesn't know exactly what they want to do in the game space. Sure. And 
Yeah, I was, I was, I was at, I always thought myself was at Firaxis, but I was at 2K mm. when they were opening, you know, stuff over there. Mm. And yeah, it was, they were looking for, you know, skills, specialization, you know, you know, the, uh, the idea was that it would just extend out the work that needed to be done. And, you know, they didn't really look at it as a place where I guess you'd, you know, find general talent, right? Mm. Um, yeah, so I didn't get hired off that, obviously. But later, like a month later, I don't remember, um, he came back to me because they something came up where they had no one that had multiple talents and they needed someone to do something that crossed multiple uh, programs and uh, abilities. And they asked me, and I'm like, yeah, I could do all that. They needed, for Bioshock 2, they needed someone who can create a pipeline for making the level design maps into the 2D maps that would be, you know, when you pause the game and look at it. And so that meant someone who can use the, the editor, uh, Photoshop, uh, Flash, probably something else that I don't remember. Right. And so um, I was and, like, yeah, I can do that. And you knew these things? Like, uh, like Photoshop, you used Flash before? I used Photoshop all the time. I used Flash. I had used Hammer a lot, and I had messed around with okay. Unreal because I was doing, like, Team Fortress maps for fun post-college. Um, and so I was familiar with, enough with all the tools. That, and okay. also, I'm, I'm not too afraid of learning new tech that I can just sort of fumble my way through it. Okay. So you didn't just go through college and then hope to get a game job. You were starting to do stuff on your own. Yeah, I did stuff on my own, and I and I was trying to study. I, I took some programming classes, and I was looking up tutorials on how to do various types of things. But I never was, you know, I I was never that self motivated that I made games and post on TikTok and interacted with right. a whole bunch of people and yada yada yada. I were you familiar with that that it existed or at that time no right. Okay. Um, Anyway, continue. Yeah, um, and so my jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none thing ended up coming in handy. Uh, I did that whole project pretty much alone. I was just like, they put me in a computer and just sitting there by myself doing these maps. Just kind of uh, nice. Um, yeah. And then they recognized my... Were you... Uh I'm trying to remember the exact details. Were you designing maps, or was it more of a? It was an art part pipeline tech thing. No, it's just literally how to how to how to make what they need in Flash to have those 2D maps based on the 3D architecture of the uh, in-game engine. So I'm like taking you know screenshots of uh, cleared out maps of in-game maps, and then putting that into Photoshop and then making vector-based things and then using those vector-based things in in Flash to put it into the tools that they need that the game can interpret to use as the maps and like figuring out where the player character is at any given time or whatever. So the stuff you made would turn into the 2D maps that showed up in the game? Yeah. The video? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm cartographer style. Right. Just marking down what the level designers made in the game. Are. Right. Okay. I, I added no creative content to the right. game. Yeah, um, I also had no impact, no no interaction with anyone else. It was just like, here's a map. Okay, give me. I want a 2D map. There you go. Yep. Um, but it was during that process I kind of realized I was pretty good at design stuff, and so I got swooped into the their uh, design team after that. Okay. How did they? I mean, if you were kind of like feel like you're part of assembly line, how did they see that you were good at design? 
because I was the one who was designing the assembly line as I, okay. they, had, they had. You figured out the problem. Yeah, they said, we have this, we need this. Yes, and you made it all work. Yeah, I figured yeah, out okay. a hack guy, hack need, a total BS way of right. like, putting it all together. <laughs> well, that's, that's half of game development, so. Yeah, and I, I think they saw that skill as being helpful, and yeah. so they didn't want to lose me after that, I guess. Okay, cool. So what, what did you do after that then? Um, I mostly spent my time on Topspin uh, Wii version, mm -hmm. um, where I was fruitlessly swinging a Wii remote while trying to tweak numbers to make it have anything meaningful and failing for months and months. <laughs> and coming up with a... They, they gave me some free range to add some silly things to the game, like uh, little multiplayer fun modes. Um, on top of that, my role was kind of odd where the studio really wanted to have their own project because they're kind of almost like an insourcing. Right, um, in-house outsource company. In, yeah, um, just doing what everyone else needs. and uh, They wanted their own identity, I suppose. Yeah, Julien, Julien Baer's, um, um he really wanted the studio to have its own thing that they can like rally behind and like and put their own creative you know, footprint in the world. And so they were constantly pitching to the higher-ups. Um, and my role ended up in, in like half of my job or a third of my job would just be keep making these pitches, um, whether it was someone else's idea and then I tried to flesh them out and like make a, a document um, or my own ideas. So we would meet, the team would meet regularly to sort of try and come up with some random ideas. Did you, do you remember any concept that you pitched that you were like, thought was like a particularly good one? Particularly good? I'm probably not. One thing <laughs> okay. I liked though was like, um, I was trying to, we were trying to figure out a way to use the Wiimote in a way that would be interesting. Sure. And so there was a game inspired by, it's the name is escaping me, <laughs> the, the NES game where you're jumping on tiles and you have a yo-yo oh star tropics okay um kind of inspired by star tropics of like uh yo-yo slash boomerang slash something yep. as a as a weapon slash tool in a um not super ambitious 3d platformer type of game right um i had a lot of fun dreaming up that right. um but um, none of those came to fruition, and the higher-ups didn't really seem to want to give an IP to, to the studio, yep, which sure. eventually, I think, uh, fostered some ill will. Um, but that was beyond my pay grade. So. Sure, yeah. Um, other than that, I ended up working on uh, a bunch of Facebook stuff, um, okay. stuff that never panned out as far as I know. Right. Okay. Um, so, uh, I assume we're getting to the point where you, you moved on. Like, yeah, so, so what happened? I was working, uh, next to Matthew Davis on Topspin for, oh, okay. on Topspin Wii, and we... In China? Yep, he moved to China as well. His story's kind of funny, you know, similar timeline. He came to GDC and just was applying as a, you know, recent graduate or whatever, and the only people who gave a really positive response would be like, okay, we have a job for you if you move to China. And he's like, sure, yeah, whatever. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, yep. Easygoing fella. Yeah. And... Okay, so you guys became friends. Yeah, through, what, bo through board games mostly. Okay, over board games. Yeah. Like, which, what, what did you guys play? 
Uh, those days, what did we play? You know, some um, Euro games here and there, but uh, a lot of things like Game of Thrones or um, the giant 12-hour 4X I mean, game. Twilight, Twilight Imperium. Imperium. Wow, okay. And right, serious stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And But I think our favorite was, and it might not be a surprise, Battlestar Galactica. Okay, um, sure. Favorite in terms of we definitely played that the most. Yeah. Um, and we both were going to quit, and we both had almost a year left on our visa, and China's cost of living was stupid low. Yep. And so we're like, let's just make some prototypes for fun. The goal was to make oh, three prototypes in a year. Um, and then the first prototype became FTL. And the very first one? Yeah. Okay. How did it like? How did it start? Like, What was your concept at the very beginning? Kind of, you know, Battlestar Galactica slash Star Trek-y. Um, the core premise is we want the player to feel like the captain of a, of a spaceship. Not the pilot, not the commander of a battalion or whatever, but the person saying, engineers, get to this floor, you know, this, this thing is on fire or whatever. Right. Um, and so that was the premise, you know, like that episode in Battlestar Galactica where um, Adama had, like, has to shut off, like uh, close off a section of the ship that had a breach and everyone inside died. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like that feeling of that decision. Sure, yeah. Um, and that could be a lot of things. That could be a lot of games. Um, it could be, you know, musing, musing over there's no combat whatsoever and you're just managing morale um, or generation ship or right. um, that sort of stuff. And we ended up, uh, the first thing we prototyped was just simply the easiest thing to make, um, which was a tile grade moving crew around. And um, the only in threat- In real time or in turn based? Uh, real time. I think even back then there was paused. Uh, real time paused, just a bunch of squares that represent rooms, doors, airlocks. Um, but in this case, if you open the airlock and you're in the room, the crew would just get sucked out, um, Immediately. Which, we, which we removed. Yeah. But um, we did have like stations because we liked that idea. And then we had uh, asteroids just periodically pelting, uh, X-wing style directional shields, which I always want to put in anything I ever do. And then um, you just have to move your crew and try to shields, fires. meaning like the shields are cover a certain part of the ship. Yeah. So you have like the, you know, four sections of shield around the ship yep, and then sure. this one gets hit enough time and then you have to depower the other ones to repower yeah. this one. Cause we're going in the asteroid field in this yeah. direction. Did, uh, I mean, I played through a few ships on, in FTL, yeah. but did that ever come into FTL or did you not actually do that? Uh, so, uh, I mean, gradually we moved away from it, but this, this pure, um, move your crew around to put out fires and try not to run out of oxygen game. Um, we were trying to figure out how to put combat in that and that initially meant um, 2D large map, uh, you know, you're flying them around, you pick a direction of where they're supposed to fly and then, so that meant you can be hit from certain directions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty terrible. You're just constant zooming in and out and not knowing what's going on. And the, the pivotal moment in the game's design was Matt when, I think he was inspired by like Tetris, two-player Tetris. Uh -huh. And just like, why, why don't we just have them not move around at all? And it's just fully abstracted. Um, and we're just focusing on the interior of the ship. Right. And so at that point, we got rid of the direction. So there was, a, there, was a dry, there was like a flying aspect where yeah. you're like, I want to go in this direction. But at the same time, you're moving guys around. And it was just 
Do you remember uh, Unknown Worlds? I think that was the name of the game. Uh, no, I haven't. Um, well, that sounds really familiar, though. That was a big inspiration for Matt, but like uh, kind of 4X-y, kind of, but has some space battles, kind of FTL event right. non, uh, stuff. Anyways, uh, but yeah, so we're initially, our, our frame of reference was ships have to fly around and you have to worry about position relative to them and you have weapons in the front and you need to angle the weapons in the front. Um, but that was too much and we, the thing that was most interesting to us was power management and crew management. Right. And so we just decided to double down on that because yeah. that's stuff you don't see in games at all. Sure. Like crew management in that way, like I hadn't seen it all. Dwarf Fortress, I don't right. know. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess now that I think, obviously, like, in FDL, you, you super abstract that stuff, you know? It's just kind of like, it's two, two little uh, ship maps, and mm -hmm. they just, they don't move at all, and, you know, you can zoom in, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I, I guess I didn't really think it through, but, you know, obviously, probably, most people start with the most obvious thing of, like, these are ships, they yeah. should be fly around, and that should be a big part of the game. But once you do that, yeah, it's like, you know, like rubbing your belly and patting your head, I assume, right? Like it gets really Yeah, really it forced tricky. us to be like, what is the what what do we want out of this? What is the what is the loop yep. that we want? Yep. And we want the decision making. We don't want the like strategizing. Yeah. Like the decision of which room do I send this guy to right now? Not necessarily how do I get the right position on this AI. Well players can only handle so much. Yeah, right. Definitely. So like you really have to figure out you you gotta pull stuff out to focus on the stuff that you want. Yeah, and we're also very practical in that we don't usually have this like grand image of this perfect game that we want to make. It's more just like, what's the easiest way to do the minimal amount of work to get the thing we want? Um, and that's kind of how we work. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's let's see what's good what stuff good stuff to talk about. So you were you, you know figured out let's keep the ships let's keep the ship in the same place, you know. The, there were always enemy ships, like or was you, you initially described it as you're kind of flying, you know, flying through an asteroid field. Yeah, I mean, like the problem we reach in all the games we make, um, we have a cool mechanic because that's where we start from first, and with the goal of a specific atmosphere. And the question is, how do you make a game out of that? Like, you right. can't just—it's not just a little toy to play with. You have to make a game. Um, so. Combat came in pretty quick, if I recall, um, because it just emphasized the roles that the stations played. Like you could, you can put your knowledge of the importance of shields into like another situation of using it against someone else. Meaning, like um, I don't know, it just it just made perfect sense to to like expand on what you already know without overwhelming the player because you don't need to learn something new. You already know that situation that bad guy's in, um, that's bad. You know, like you don't you know that because you went through it yourself. And so right. that felt pretty natural. Um but the rest of the stuff, figuring out the game, um was more like Star Trek inspired of like, you know, just go places and weird things happen and make decisions um in a little like episodic content. Originally there was no end to the game. It was just sort of infinite, but the playtesters that we had just like would break right. everything forever. So we knew we needed some sort of conclusion. Now, FTL is often kind of like uses a good example of like kind of one of the games that brought brought the concept of like push. For, I mean, it was around for a while, but pushing forward the concept of a roguelike. Yeah. Right. Um, 
how how direct was that influence? Like, had you played, you know, NetHack type games? So at 2K, I got in a huge binge of playing free games that I would share with people on the team and like do write-ups and like try and have talks about them. Um, and there was a whole section where I just went deep into roguelikes, um, you know, like Stone Soup and all that. Um, you know, this is like way in the future. So, uh, you know, NetHack and Rogue were very good and interesting, but I was more drawn to some of the later stuff. Um, but Splunky uh, was the one that turned it for me. That was the one that was like, oh, you can take mechanics from one genre and put them in another genre? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, right. oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a framework, right? It's not yeah. really a genre, right? Yeah, um, it's it's just mechanical tools that could be that, that serve a purpose. Um, right. And so... And you understood that like, the purpose was to push the player to play differently. Yeah. Right, um, like the, to experience variety. Yeah, like the hunger clock plays a specific role, I guess. Um, but... So with FTL, a lot of the decisions were just rather easy. Like um, we wanted decisions to feel like they mattered. And that means the results of the decisions have to be rather impactful and you can't save scum. So permadeath. Um, like that was an easy um, path to follow. Some of the other stuff like the fleet chasing you, that was... I don't remember if it was my idea, but for me at least, from my perspective, the point of the fleet was to be the hunger clock of a roguelike. It sure. was, it's right. playing the same role. It's, it's limiting uh, your ability to see everything. It's forcing you to make choices of which things to look at and which, what things to prioritize. Right. Um, you can't grind. Yeah, you can't grind. You can't, and it's not, and there's a mild feeling of pressure at all times. Um, and there's a, there's a bit of FOMO and there's a bit of, um, worrying that you're wasting your time. Um, so that was very much like transplanting some roguelike design into FTL, but it definitely wasn't like, um, let's start the roguish genre, uh, or <laughs> roguelite genre or something like that. Um, but I, it was very much just for me, at least Spelunky's uh, influence. Okay. I mean, to me, the big thing that, you know, I, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about the permadeath, although obviously those do kind of come together. Um, I was thinking more of, of, you know, the way you're introduced to new, new items and enhancements and crew members right. and like, like that's the thing. Like you, there is no, there is no golden path through the game Yeah. because, you know, every time you play, you're going to get, you know, different options. Uh, again, that, that kind of stuff just made sense for the type of, um, feeling we wanted the player to get while playing the the fact that you are given certain tools and you have to be forced to learn how to use them um, and find a way to make them useful to you that highly interested us so stuff like um, procedural generation of maps and or uh, outcomes of events and all that stuff it's just it, it just naturally followed some of the more conscious decisions would be like compared to a rogue legacy where you're always working towards unlocks or progressing or something. Uh, Matt especially was like super adamant of everything is there on the first playthrough. There's no, there's nothing that you couldn't be exposed to um, 
at least like from the random generation of the game, right. uh, on the first playthrough. That was like a high high priority. And no, gradually adding weapons to the pool. No, you know, enemies evolve the more you play the game or something yeah. like that. Well, I thought the way you you laid out the the different ships really helped a lot with that because there was you know my first time through was what's the name of the first ship? Uh, the Kestrel. The Kestrel. So you know my first couple times through with the Kestrel, you know I would see things like the crew transporter, mm. and I was like, well. At that point, it, I would be all the way into a game. I would already have what I want. I'm like, well, I don't know what that is. So yeah. I'm <laughs> like, I'll just stick with the thing that I know is going to get me. And then eventually you get a ship where it's like, well, this is this is what you start with. Yeah. Right? You got no choice but to engage with that. Um, like, was that a con? Is that like, when did you, was that a conscious decision? And how did that kind of come about? Yeah, that was a kind of like our version of a tutorial. Um, the, the ships, you know, were amateurishly designed to act as tutorials to force you to learn how to use things. Like, uh, I w wanted the NG ship to be second because I wanted to teach you drones. Like, here's yep. how you use drones. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, to be honest, the game was never intended to be a commercial game, um, especially really? early on. We, we were just making a prototype that we thought we would want to play, and it's just a silly, silly, fun little thing. And every what's what's the difference? Like, it's an interesting phrase. Like, what's the difference in your mind when you say that? Meaning, we had no thought to the end user initially. Okay. We had no desire to make people happy. We were making uh, a horribly masochistic experience right. that we expected no one would want to play. Right. Um, we're just literally doing it for ourselves. Um, and so gradually, as we showed it to more people and there was more interest and we did the Kickstarter and we got like a, like awards and people playing it. Um, we're gradually trying to shift into, Oh, okay. We make a commercial game and, um, let's make sure the UI works and it's not buggy or whatever. Um, but the core like methodology for designing the game was very much, uh, user unfriendly. Like what is the things that I want to do? I kind of want to be like forced to, kill my own crew members or whatever, blow up or whatever, you know, right. I, I want these very unfriendly things. And so, um, honestly, I am still shocked that this game. So do you feel like you'd been, if you'd been making it for a company or, you know, you needed, you knew, you knew you were making a try to sell, you would have made different choices. Um, I don't know what choices I would make, but I know that game wouldn't exist. There's no way you like, that is not something, at least as far as I know, that I would even attempt to pitch to someone. It, it just was, um, from my, you know, that was that was the era of that people refer to as like the super handholdy style. Yeah, and sure, it sure. wasn't a hundred percent clear. You know, this was what Demon Souls time before Dark Souls, maybe. Right. Um, and it wasn't clear that this is something people would people would even want the type of challenge that I grew up with anymore. Now, in retrospect, obvious, like people were like super craving that um, that type of challenge. Like I grew up with never having beaten Ninja Gaiden ever, you know, like, yep. and still loving that game. And so we just wanted something just ruthlessly hard. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, the context is important. Like, I, I'm trying to remember when I, the, the, this, you know, the remake of XCOM came out or the reboot of XCOM. It seems like, like it, was, it was that era as well where, yeah. you know, like I, where it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, we've been slowly drifting in this one direction. Yeah, and maybe you know we 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 uh, we were you know we generally thought we were doing it because we wanted to grow the industry, sure, or grow the you know the you know like why you know why are we 
why are games so hard for people? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important to, for that context to, to for people to remember that that you know there is a culture of games that kind of slowly changes over time of like what you know what we think is a good idea right now. You mm. know, like like now I think people are playing with all sorts of interesting ideas with like asymmetry mm. um, and you know you know other things that, that have kind of been been lost as well, right? And um, so yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah. That would, we were very much unconsciously tapping into that zeitgeist of like, oh, I kind of liked it when there was like challenge and like that type of challenge is obviously always challenge, but like the feeling that you just putting time in won't necessarily mean you, you'll finish the game. Right. Um, and now I feel like we've gone so far in that direction as being normalized that um, there's a new pushback in the last few years of, you know, what if, what if games were a comforting or wholesome or ple- like a calming, you know, type of experience? And I feel like that type of game is now pushing hard. And like for our next game, I, I don't think it would be pure uh, roguelike, you know, lose, start from the beginning style challenge I, I i kind of have it have had enough of it and sure and there's other type of experiences i want yeah well i mean i um like for example i think that um you know there was a, a big change and i think it was, it was good that it happened right that that you know people said okay you know like we don't want to take this tool we, we don't want to take difficulty away as a game design yeah. tool and aesthetic right um but yeah, for sure there was a period of time where, you know, there's almost the assumption of like, oh, you have to bring forward all these conventions. Like if you're making a roguelike, it's got to mean this, this, and this, yeah. right? Like I actually think permadeath is a big problem for XCOM mm. um, because uh, it leads to super conservative play. Yeah. Right, which is not fun. It's mm. actually really boring, mm. right? And, um, you know, that's, you know, you can see, you can see, you know, it's just because it's always, it's always better to let them come to you you know, move yeah. your guys into place into positions where things are totally safe. You know, let things happen, and you know, it's just kind of a, you know, a, a fallout from the assumption that this is the right way to, this is the official way to play the game. Um, yeah, there's definitely. Well, it's just what's the emotion that you're trying to go for? Um, right. I feel like, and and they want that emotion of losing the person that you cared about, and then being forced to keep going. Um, and you know, that's like a high level game design choice that have to have these ripples of, okay, then most people play ridiculously conservatively. Yep. Um, and unless I guess if maybe it's possible to like design around that and like somehow protect the player from themselves. Right. <laughs> um, but that, that's really hard. And I, um, yeah, protecting the players from themselves is, is a really important, I think yeah. <laughs> goal for a designer. And, you know, they see they've, they've struggled with it. Like they introduced, that's why they introduced things like mission timers. Yeah. Where they're like, okay, we got to keep people moving so they can't, but it's, it's like, like a band aid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, well, maybe the real problem is like to, to me, if I was to do whatever XCOM three or one of the, you know, one of these, like, it's like, I would lean heavily into like injuries. Mm, right. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, let, let there be, mm. right. Let there be consequence. Um, but it has to be consequences that the player is going to accept. Mm. That they're like, okay. And beyond that, maybe that makes the story more interesting, right? And you go forward, like, okay, now this guy permanently has a limp or something. Or maybe he can't go out into the field, but he's going to be, like, 
a guy who staffs your base and has this awesome research stuff or whatever, or he trains other people or, sure. or so on. So, um, have you played Wilder Myth? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good. Did very you see good. that talk? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I was yeah. there. Uh, I met those guys last night. Mm. Uh, they seem really, really smart. Um, yeah. They, that's a great example. I love how they do uh, death. Yeah. Right. Where like, you know, they've determined, okay, now is the time when a character would die. And so now you have a choice. You can either let, you know, you know, let the character, how does it work exactly? The they, character can die or you can choose an option where they're, dang, I'm actually forgetting exactly. Maybe you, uh, yeah, they have, you have two choices. Um, they die in a heroic way, right. in a way that is impactful for the game, depending on that character. That so might you, mean just like killing someone with their dying breath or they get maimed uh, permanently. Right. Um, and the second time that that happens in a single episode they just die but that first time you get to pick do they go out in a blaze of glory or um do they permanently have to adapt uh in the future and of course their whole maiming system is like super robust because they have all these weird transformations and stuff right yeah, yeah they talked they talked to talk about how they almost made maiming too good uh, because like it was <laughs> people really liked seeing you know seeing what happens when the characters get maimed which is you know this is the you know, the eternal wheel of game design where <laughs> now this yeah. is a, a different problem. Um, but yeah, I thought that was, that was really, really well done. So, you know, like they, you know, they incorporate the fact that like dying is going to happen and the, the, we, you know, we, we do not want to design a game where dying makes people feel like they want to reload. Yeah. Like, period. Like that's just, that's just bad design. Like we, we got to figure out a way to get around that. With, um, I mean, it's jumping, but with Into the Breach, the like core hope with that game was um, to put the player in the situation where they're willing to sacrifice themselves or the, you know their their favorite characters for the sake of protecting the city. Like yeah. that was the um, that was the impetus for a lot of this game, and by virtue of the game being solvable. Um, Sorry, this is a big topic that I'm kind of like... <laughs> it's okay, go for like, it. Uh, touching on it. I probably have to give a lot more ref frame of reference. Um, so one of the things that I'm working on right now is more content for Into the Breach. Okay. And one of those things is a harder mode of the game, which I'm calling unfair okay. uh, mode based on um, Slice and Dice, which I game I really recommend. Okay. Um, it's good to give that taunt context, by the way, like unfair. So yeah, it frames <laughs> it literally. Yep. Because we we're so obsessed with game being fair before, yep. right? And so with a game like Into the Breach, which if the listeners don't know, it's like a mechs versus kaiju, uh, super small grid tactical game, um, where your primary goal is to protect the city. So like you, you, your people can all die, but if the city stays standing, you will be able to keep playing. Um, mostly from like watching superhero movies and like they're like we won and the city's all destroyed and no one seems to notice or care and just hating that um, so we want a game where the city protection was the primary goal um, so we wanted this situation where the you know a pilot, your favorite pilot can die being a hero and that's okay and you can move on from there but the fact that the game is almost like a puzzle game uh, in the end the if it's going to be possible to win, someone who's good at the game will always win. Um, mm -hmm. There's no, yep. there's no like human error time or whatever because it's just like it's almost like chess or something. You just look at it. 
like puzzles. Um, so with unfair mode, what I did uh, is I just sort of upped the um, mm, the spikes <laughs> of of how you're doing, it, rather than just sort of even, it's going okay, and then I'm gradually losing. It's just like doing great, doing terrible. Now I'm doing great, now I'm doing terrible. So in game, that means um, there's way more enemies and way more constant losing of power, but there's it's way faster to recover power. Um, so you're always like teetering on the brink of death and defeat. Uh -huh. um, and that, um, and the reason why I made that is because if I'm keeping testing the game, hard mode is too boring for me, and so I just want to have fun while playing. Sure. And um, now, finally, to get to the reason why I even brought this up, was I finally reached that balance where multiple times I, like, I have this tough decision where I'm like, okay, what do I do here? I'm going to sacrifice my favorite person, and it's actually going to save the game, and I'm actually going to be able to progress and actually win in the game in the end, which never really happened with Into the Breach originally, but is one of the reasons that I'm really psyched about um, doing this uh, new content in the harder mode. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, because that's that's a pretty great story moment, right? If that you know comes to pass systematically. Right? That type of stuff. Yeah. That's the stuff I wanted the game to feel like originally is to make to force you to make that decision where destroying a building yourself might actually be in the greater good or right. whatever, and that yeah, just yeah. rarely comes up. Um, even in hard of the original game. Sure, cool. All right. Uh, well, maybe I think what's a good thing. Let's talk about like the you know how FTL kind of you know snowballed, right? Because um, did you have some, did you have some success before you did the Kickstarter, and like why did you do the Kickstarter? Like how did that all come to pass? Yeah, uh, we um, we submitted to IGF China, GDC China's IGF competition. And we set that basically as just a, let's have a deadline for like a build that feels okay. Um, and there we got some good recognition. We got accepted and nominated, didn't win anything, but we got to show there. And because of that, met with uh, like Adam Saltzman uh, played the game and Nathan Vella played the game. And, and there's a lot of like, whoa, okay, I guess maybe this is a thing. Um, and from that, we decided, okay, let's just Do you actually... remember what they told you? Like, just keep going? Or did they have any specific insights that made a difference? Mm, I don't remember. Okay. Um, sure. the, I, I remember just simply having them play the game and having feedback at all was, like, super impactful so, yeah, to me. Sure. And that their overall vibe is, oh, this is cool. I think you got something here. Right. You know, obviously it's not great state but like well, yep. I haven't seen this before you know that type of encouragement yeah um, so from there we tried to just finish the game and then we I'm trying to remember the timeline here we got <laughs> accepted to uh, we got an honorable mention for IGF the nor the US GDC IGF mm -hmm. and through that process we got on live. You remember on live? Yeah, I do um, remember on live. Streaming service. Yeah. yeah. So on live offered to give us a like a demo, you know, because we were worried about builds getting out on that. We didn't have any tools for distribution. We didn't have a website or anything. So on live offered to let us put our game on there. 
um, and and so at that time we decided to sync it up with doing a Kickstarter because we were running out of money um, and we just wanted enough to pay the pay Ben who was making our music and to mm-hmm. just start a company and all that sort of stuff. And so the Kickstarter happened around the same time as Double Fine's Kickstarter. In that area, era, we were still thinking, okay, we might be able to like sell this as a game, but in no way did we think it would be popular. And the I had mostly thought of the Kickstarter as a way to legitimize getting money from family and friends, because <laughs> um, we only asked for ten thousand um, dollars, right? And, and right. just to get a little bit, you know, to to give most of that to Ben. Um, but then we got about two hundred and something thousand dollars, way yeah. more than we expected. Um, we suddenly had nine thousand beta testers or something like that, and we had no idea what we we're doing. And so, honestly, that Kickstarter time was super stressful because right. we went from we're just you know messing around, making a fun, silly little thing, to now there's people with expectations and we have to deliver something, and we didn't actually expect that to happen. Sure. I mean, I know the first time I ever heard of FTL, it was not in the context of, hey, here's this cool strategy game, you should play it. It was like, hey, there's this thing that did something on Kickstarter, ah. right? Which is really kind of odd if you think about it, right? Like, <laughs> like that's what you were initially known for um, and because it was so new. It, entirely because of Double Fine. Um, right. They basically, there was like two or three games on Kickstarter that were pretty professional-ish before that, but like... Um, everyone's eyes were on Kickstarter, and we were like one of you know these three. Yeah, because three people games. would write articles, and they're like, "Oh, and there's this other yeah. one or two games, and you would be one of them, right?" So this is another one of the super lucky ways that we like optimized right. <laughs> and got lucky on all our timing and everything. I mean, it was an amazing choice to make, right? Um, so I mean, pure I, luck or just, some sort of tapping into the cultural. Zeitgeist, maybe, but I, I, I suspect you, mostly luck. Where did you first hear about it? Kickstarter, I I was emulating my friend who did a Kickstarter for his farm, his organic farm okay. in Sonoma. All right. Um, that was mostly getting money from family and friends. But, um, yeah, so I just thought it'd be a cool way to let the people in my life know what we're doing and, like, throw some money our way. Yeah, so that, that's why we did Kickstarter initially. And then so... Double Finds thing started like, I don't know, a few days or a week before ours. Right. And we're like, whoa, okay. Um, and so that that completely changed the trajectory that we were on. What did sure. you feel like at that moment? Like, did it, did it happen like pretty much immediately? And like, like yeah, how, did, how did that change your thinking? Fully funded in a few hours. And um, let's see, I was feeling validated and excited and super gung ho. Matt was feeling primarily stress and mm-hmm. unhappiness and panic. Um, I was going to ask, were you scared? Plus, I assume, happiness and stuff right. is there as well, but in terms of the primary content of our discussions, it was mostly panic. Right. Um, because now there's all these people who are expecting something? or Yeah, um, people who are expecting something, responsibilities, we made promises, deadlines, things that we don't know how to execute on, like the having... How do you get a build to that many backers that just isn't uh, available for everyone all the time instantly? Yeah. Um, the technical side of the stuff, we had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. I mean, uh, now Steam can do that stuff easily. Lots of services can. So, like, how did you actually get stuff to people? So, at that point, it was still, you know, it was before Greenlight, 
And so Steam was still accepting games like, you know, curatorial style. Right. And we had at that GDC set up and I had a meeting with them and I was super stressed and I had like kind of a mini pitch about why it would be uh, good to do so. And then we had, a, had in this meeting after a very short, um, after a very short time, like they were just sort of talking as if everything's normal and everything's moving forward. And I kind of was like, well, what about if we have the game on Steam? And and he was like, oh, you're already approved. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. And I was like, what? What just happened? <laughs> like, um, I was, yeah, it took me like a minute to recover from that shock. Um, yeah, that was, it was a very different time with Steam at that point. Right. And, you know, um, so it, Matt and I had made the game basically by ourselves. We had... You know, our partners were helping with like English text and writing and editing. We had someone helping. Ben Prunty was doing the music and sound effects, and we had like two, two, three good friends testing. Um, but like working on the game is primarily us two. Around that time, I don't remember the timeline. We hired Tom Francis to do. Sorry, not Tom Francis. Tom Joubert. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just saw him. <laughs> My brain. Um, Sorry, around that time we hired Tom Joubert to help with the writing and mm-hmm. world building and, and fleshing out the events and stuff. Our response to getting more money than we expected was to pretend it doesn't exist. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, this was before stretch goals, this was before yeah, sure. structured campaigns, yep. um, and we were like, hiring someone would take more time than we even allotted to make the game. Right. So we, we don't even have a company yet. Um, so we just kind of did not use most of that money at all. We didn't even touch it. Um, I wouldn't even know what to spend it on um, or how. So mostly extra money added, you know, ease of mind and feeling like it's the game's already paid for itself, but also just stress and expectations. And people like people are expecting the game to be X bigger because. 10 times bigger or 12 or 20 times bigger because it got 20 times the funding or whatever. Yeah. Um, but we didn't have the capacity to act on that. So you now had, you know, thousands of people potentially playing the game. Yeah. Did you distribute it like that pretty quickly? So we then did a build on Steam that they yeah. helped us um, go give to the beta testers. Yeah. And that was a whole new thing for us. Yeah. yeah. How did that change the development? Like um, how, how much did their, how much back and forth was there basically? They we set up a system for them to like do bug reports through I think a program that doesn't exist anymore I can't remember um, bug reports and like feature suggestions and it had a system where they can upvote them type of thing mm-hmm. um, so we don't get too many duplicates um, in terms of how it changed development I think we were desperate to maintain course and just be like what worked for us thus far let's keep doing that right. Um, so we tried our best not to like shift f- too much or like they all wanted multiplayer and we're like, of course not. Um, yeah. You know, we're not, we're not just giving in to the whims of the other people. We need to make the thing that we had wanted to make type of vibe. But the ways that it influenced development directly was we were kind of, I was kind of addicted to sort of being mean to them. Okay. Meaning like, 
I'm just going to keep making these unlocks of these ships harder and harder. Okay. And so, like, that's the reason why the crystal ship is just, if you don't know, the, like, secret final ship is just stupid hard to unlock. Like, right. maybe 90% of runs, you wouldn't even have the the RNG to result in the possibility of getting yep. it unlocked. Um, and so I just kept, like, m making it harder and making the, the quests more convoluted and stupid. Um, and so... That, that's a way that the beta testers directly, this back and forth of they were always hungry for more stuff and more challenge and more hidden things. And so um, I, I was sort of feeding off that and we we're going back and forth. And other material changes is like, you know, the game got way better and more balanced. And we actually, we didn't have data in terms of calculating what people did, but we had data in terms of other, other people playing it besides the four or five of us. Right. Because often, I mean, what I was curious about is that kind of at a high level, when you expose your own assumptions to real players, like you've, you've learned stuff really quickly about like, oh, I was wrong about blank. I was wrong about blank. Like, were there any significant course changes that, that um, fall, like, fall from that? Like by and large, it was the, the overarching feeling was we were making something that we wanted to play and then, oh wait, other people want to play this. Like that was kind of a big aha type of thing. So it didn't, we still just thought, okay, let's make the thing that we want to play. But there were stuff like, I was planning all this like background art and like different planets and like, I don't know, like a satellite when the text says there's a satellite and all this art stuff that no one cared about or even would notice if I put in. Yep. Um, that I redirected all my efforts towards uh, weapons and events and enemies and, and, you know, directly related to gameplay things um, and sort of never bothered with any of the, yeah. the aesthetic could, stuff. You could see what mattered by, because you could see what people were talking about. Yeah, most of these people would be fine if it was like a text-based game with no art. Um, <laughs> so, well, I mean, you know, ASCII yeah, sure. or whatever. So I definitely did not... It, it shifted my priorities, at least, which is good because I'm also not that great at the art stuff, and I was struggling. <laughs> right, right, right. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like, the maybe a couple a couple design things you know to to mention about the game. You know, we we kind of glanced over like the power thing, but like that seems like such a core part of the game. Like, yeah. Almost it is the game, right? Like like was that kind of fully formed at the beginning, or like where did that come from exactly? I think that was one of the earliest designs was this like sort of um you know pip system for power distribution. Uh we wanted it to be way more impactful in the game than it was. You're not you don't actually have to shift that much around power wise, but we really wanted it to be like oh new threat, all right, I need to readjust my power to deal with this specific threat. Um so that was there from the beginning, but it was only over time that we realized uh, how elegant that system was, uh, at least in my own opinion, because it's like a single bar that performs like three or four functions. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, displays how much power, like, sorry, how strong a specific system is. It lets you strategize and prioritize aspects of the ship. It also represents damage. It also represents um, and shows repair progress and like all these sort of things that are just built into the UI itself of these pips. And, and once we realized uh, how versatile and simply how fun and easy that was, we were trying to lean into it as much as possible. But uh, there were limitations on how much we can put into that and rely on that. Right, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, one thing I, I kind of like find interesting about the game is like it's not this, it's not really the right term to say like all the systems aren't balanced, um, but it's, it's almost kind of like they, they they are very orthogonal, you know, like they they serve very different purposes at very different times, mm. and like you can play through a couple times and think, oh, this thing's not that important. Yeah. But then there's other things you do that like, oh, now I you know now I do care about my doors, and yeah. I realize like why that's really actually pretty interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the things that was a kind of an aha moment of like, oh, you know, our normal instincts for uh, what is good in the game, get strength, don't get speed or whatever, you know, right. um, might not apply in there. Oh, okay, doors actually do matter. And I feel like that sense of your assumptions being wrong in terms of what is effective um, is extremely effective in, in making the game feel like it's full of potential and full of opportunity to learn things and strategize and come up with new stuff, even if it isn't that deep. You know, FTL isn't even that deep, but it feels like it's really deep and yep. it feels like you can express yourself in gameplay and, you know, the strategies that you want to do. And I, that's kind of like a trick that works super, super good, I feel like. Yeah. Um, the same way that, like, the first time you play a Metroidvania where, let's say, you've never seen a double jump in your life and you get a double jump, uh, or Axiom Verge, the time when you can like shift through the walls, it's just like, oh, the whole world shifts now. Like now I see the world with a lens of there's these other things I can do. And those sorts of uh, design tricks that, that make the game seem bigger than it is, is like super effective and I find fun. Yeah. Um, Not intentional though with FTL. Okay. <laughs> Pure accident. Um, oh shoot, there was something else I was, I was just blanking on. It. Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's. Um... Oh, I know. Um, I also think, I think you've kind of, it sounds like this was in pretty early, but I also think like it's a game that strikes me where the symmetry between you and your enemies is super important, like more so than I can really think of in, in other games because it, it, you know, you become, you learn the way your ship functions as a system and like it's so important that the enemy's ship functions the exact same way, right? Like. Um, if you didn't, if you didn't have that, and, and the the enemy was just kind of a bag of hit points, yeah, right. I think the game would lose a lot, for sure. Um, so, like, was that like was that something that you guys always you know, was always there? Or? Yeah, ironically, um, that necessity of symmetry was super clear and like absolutely necessary. At the same time, the game is super asymmetrical. <laughs> like, if you if the enemies acted the way you would, the game would be completely unfun. Meaning, like, sure. if they targeted things differently, it just turns in, um, into a miserable experience of just repairing your weapons forever. Right. Um, yeah, that's a great topic, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, I never really thought that through, but it's kind of feels similar to, you know, there's a thread between that into the breach, like how you you know how the what the enemy should do to you so yeah like did you guys not get that right and like how does it work exactly with the asymmetry in ftl specifically yeah yeah like what, um, what the enemy like when did you you did you learn that you know like was did you get this wrong at times where they were you know at, at times did you have them try to be smarter and then realize that was not good yeah a lot of the difficulty balance actually is um how often do they target systems and how often do they target important systems you change that by five percent or whatever and the game gets way harder right also just simply less fun um so in terms of uh 
I think the, the sweet spot is where it feels like the AI know what they're doing and they know what's a good strategy, but that you just do it better. Like, oh, right. you're smarter than them. Like, that, that's like a satisfying feeling. Um, and uh, I don't know. The balance, doing balance for us or for me is very just, um, mm, what's the right word? Just sort of like done by feeling. You just right. keep playing it and be like, oh, I'm going to tweak a number. So I can't think of anything that's like. Is this one of these things that changes by difficulty level? Like the AI is yeah. more aggressive, like more smarter about what it targets? Yeah, okay. it, it targets, um, if I recall correctly, yeah, it targets systems more often right. in, in hard mode. Yeah. Um, which is why you spend more time repairing and why it gets exponentially more cataclysmic. Yeah. Um, looking, looking back, like what are things you might change? Because, I mean, this was really your first game, so it's, it's impossible that, you know, it all completely worked out. Yeah, there's, I mean, I would never be able to make that game now, in part because a lot of the decisions that we made were fueled by ignorance of how much work it would actually be to do. Okay. Um, and so if we were like trying... Such to, as? Uh, like, let's make a bunch of text events where all yeah, your, sure. your equipment can have impact their results and yada, yada, yada. Or, you know, yeah. So, like, that type of um, naivete of, like, how do you polish all this stuff? And then what does that mean about localization or whatever? I feel like if I were to make those decisions now, it'd be like, oh, God, I don't want to do all that work, you know? Yep. Um, and so, in that way, the game would never be made. Um, in terms of doing stuff differently, I think my my like values of like what I want to get out of a game is different. So it's not that I thought those decisions were bad, but there's tons of stuff I would do differently now. I'd make a very different game. Like for example, I would not want the ability to repair to reset the game essentially let's say both ships get damaged you both fully repair the only thing that's changed is the whole damage right yeah um okay. and right. so i hate that now um huh. it just feels like um what's the point of the combat yeah that's there's no i don't know it feels like i'm doing the same thing over and over again like i'm in purgatory um, yes right like if you can just reset everything back yeah, yeah. and there's there feels like less consequence you kind of want things. that thing in the Star Trek movies when there is combat. The ships just get slowly yeah. know, battered and, you know... Well, it's almost more like naval combat, but right, yeah. Right, yeah, for sure. I don't know how that would play out if I actually try to make a game that way. But, you know, like we were talking about before, like the having consequence like uh, maiming or something, the equivalent of that in, in this situation, I feel like would be much more satisfying... Yeah, there are some like kind of really super safe strategies you can get into in yeah. FTL where you're like, ah, oh, okay, my laser is has a certain power, so I know I'll always knock their shield down at a certain rate, and I don't want to waste my I, I don't want to waste my missiles or drones, yeah. so I'm just gonna peg this guy with lasers, yeah. and I've got the repair thing I need, so nothing's fine. So even though now this this battle is gonna take four minutes yeah. instead of two minutes, and like, you know, like that's... yeah, one thing we were trying to fix, I don't know, avoid with Into the Breach was the fact that the first sector in FTL is boring. Right. It's just like always boring. And so we wanted the game to be interesting from the first fight um, with Into the Breach. So I assume if I made FTL again, I would be trying to do that as well, like to avoid this um, this sort of yeah. stagnancy of the same 
Right. Well, I think the thing is, like, if I'm thinking what you're talking about, which is that if you can just always repair your way out of everything, then theoretically, long battles have another issue, right? That you wouldn't have to. Um, that, yeah. that would be a problem, right? Like, you'd have a reason why you'd want to, like, yeah. get it over with quicker. Yeah, I probably have a lot of cascading other design choices. Um, but yeah, I just really didn't like the whole, like, oh, I'm making progress. I finally damaged their shields, and then uh, I, I missed three times in a row, and now. We're back to the beginning again. Like yep. I hated that yep. that feeling now when I play it. Yeah, yeah. Games have a certain feel once everything is in place, mm. and sometimes you realize the tracks have just been laid, and it's like it's like I guess I could rewind stuff to fix this, but it's really difficult. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't. Know, I wouldn't know where to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, well, we'll probably we can move on into the breach, but maybe we just take some time to talk about. You know, FTL came out. Yeah. And did really well yeah you know like you guys got critical acclaim and you you know sold a lot of copies and like what did that what did that feel like like for this you know this thing that you started just as a you know this unknown pro you know unknown developers make this random prototype and it, yeah. worked, it worked i mean the easiest and simplest way to describe it is just being unreal it just doesn't really particularly make sense um I'm pretty good at just going with the flow and being like, okay, I'm in an award show now, and okay, I'm in front of all these people. I guess I'll be talking now. And obviously, it's like terrifying and um, and overwhelming and sense of uh, validation at the same time, general confusion. <laughs> but like, I also we also saw a lot of people who like a one-hit wonder style. Um, do something amazing and then they struggle after that and the yep. sophomore syndrome and all that so coming out of FTL um, I was trying to like mentally make my peace with the fact that this will probably be the most popular thing I ever do and yep. just sort of work with that as a foundation of my I don't know, sense of game developer self um, and not worry about I need to keep topping it and I need to make it better and yada, yada, yada. Just completely get that out of my mind. Um, because I think the only reason why FTL was good was because we were making it from a state of, no one's ever going to see this, like, let's just have fun. And so we were desperate to try and right. continue that mindset. Not but, just that, but like, you know, I think the, the word zeitgeist you used before is like a very, you know, accurate one, right? Like in the sense that you were, you were making a game for a need that existed, right? And it, it existed for you, but it exists for a lot of people too because you were, you know, part of the same culture. Yeah. And, but, you know, now that need has been filled to some extent, right? Like, and you know, hopefully we'll keep doing that, right? Like that's what game design's about. But, you know, like, you know, often the success of a project, you know, you make a good game, but if it hits this nerve, yeah. it's because it's at this like right game at the right time. Right? Yeah, and there's some games that hit the right nerve at the wrong time. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, there's definitely a sense of all that. Um, and just simply, maybe the thing that most tickled my fancy uh, <laughs> was the, the fact that, like, people I looked up to played it and found it, I don't know, um, informative or interesting or challenging or inspiring or something. Mm -hmm. Like, that type of, you know, hearing X Studio, oh, yeah. We didn't get any work done for like a week because we were all playing FTL or whatever. Like right. that was the most mind blowing to me. I'm kind of um, oddly dead inside when it comes to like people playing the game and enjoy it. Like that, like I'm, I know a lot of people who are like, 
showing it at shows and seeing people and their smiling faces and all that is like the reason why they make games. And that doesn't actually like for whatever uh, psychological reason doesn't strike me too much. It's like, I'm happy for, I'm happy about it. And it's great. And like best case scenario, but it's not like the reason why I make games right. and it's not a driving force for me. Um, making games for me is mo mostly selfish. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other thing that was maybe a bit of a challenge for me was, uh, you know, uh, young, uh, 26, 27, something like that. Um, not a lot of experience under their belt. And, and now like winning design awards and people looking up to it as like a super shining example of great design or something, or the end of the breach the same way, um, at least in some circles. It, it was kind of hard because I felt like I just started, like I didn't even form goals yet in the games industry and suddenly I'm at a top um, and having people look up to me and now asking me questions about design when I thought I'm going to have a long time where I get to learn from people who are way better than me. And now I'm the one that people are looking up to and turning for answers was very, you know, it's a good thing, but it was rather surreal and I felt um, unqualified. And it's also a little depressing when your only goal is to get better, to have everyone say, you're the best or whatever. Right. They want um, to get better from you. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know where you go from there. Uh, it's mm. like you, you reach the top, you reach your goal. It's like, I'm, I'm going to climb Mount Everest. And then like five steps later, I'm at the top. I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, you know, FTL isn't like super crazy success, but that's like kind of the, the mindset of like how I felt when people are now interviewing me about designs. It's like, right. heck if I know, I was just doing whatever was fun, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I'll, you know, so yeah, let's let's jump into into the breach then because yeah, you talked about how you're worried that you know you didn't want to you know didn't try want to try to top it or yeah. repeat yourself. You just want to do something something good, right? So what uh, so how so what was your plan then? Yeah, Matt and I were going into it with this like mentality of at any point we can drop it. Mm. There is no commitment here. We are not going to announce it. We're not going to tell anyone. Um, we're just here to have fun and play around. Um, and we were desperate to recreate that sort of environment. Before that time, after FTL, there was like a good year or so that Matt and I were both kind of like, I don't know, recovering um, and like just fiddling around with whatever and making prototypes and starting family and moving and yada, yada, yada. Um, but when we finally got around to working on into the breach, we were trying to do the same, recreate the same sort of environment. So we started from a general, here's the atmosphere we want people to have or the feeling to have as a player, and what's the fastest prototype that we can make to actually play something. Um, and so, you know, Matt got a, a little, this was initially his idea, and even before I even was working on it at all, he got like a little um, advanced wars scale little prototype going and you know it was functional simple basic tactics um nothing that amazing but gradually if i'm with hindsight the thing that was most interesting about it was one enemy that um indicated its attack before it did it and then you get to plan around that okay and we we kept coming back to that as the most interesting thing we tried. Was that just you know you you had 
10 enemies and they each had some weird ability and you and that was one of you guys thought hey what about a unit that telegraphed its attacks yeah i mean there's probably like three enemies but yeah, just right. one of the random things that it did we um yeah for sure and um from that point we were trying to find ways to make the game unique we were doing different methods of time management and bars and final fantasy 10 style like you know active not active, uh, like a time bar i don't know how to describe a turn bar or like uh, that sort of messing around with how the turns work sure uh, in various ways and none of that was particularly interesting and so we kept coming back to that um pr that uh, project sorry uh the unit that predicts. Yeah, predictive attacks. What's what's my word for that? I have a word for that. <laughs> it's your design. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Indication of attack yeah. system that was interesting, and so we. What what appealed to you about that? So, the goal was to have decisions, right? Where you're, I am choosing to sacrifice this mech to save the city, and if all if you have to just simply react to the, what the enemy is doing. Um, your job is predicting what the AI will do, you know, like chess. What, what do I think this enemy is going to do? And then I need to make decisions that will result in the least like, the bad things to happen with the least likelihood. Um, that didn't give a lot of control to the player on the actual outcomes, right? Um, and it put a lot into this like imagining like most tactics games, like imagining what the enemy will do. Right. And whereas this thing, it was, it was directly clear what was going to happen. It was practical, and the result of your action is known before you do it. Meaning, I know if I push him this way, this is what the enemy is going to do. And that that just fulfilled all of our needs um, thematically way, way, way more. Um, yeah, I remember you earlier talked about how you want the idea of like someone's going to sacrifice a hero yeah. to save a building. Like, like, did you have this that in mind when you know you're thinking of like, you know, you're not going to sacrifice your hero unless you're sure that like I'm doing that is, is absolutely going to save the building. Yeah, like um, choosing to sacrifice your hero and then like, oh, it was an attack that would have missed or whatever. Like that that would feel really bad. So yeah, so that 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 feeling was our goal from the beginning. So it was mostly like, how can we make gameplay that facilitates that feeling in the player? And this simply did that functionally way better. Um, so gameplay, like core gameplay loop wise, um, we sort of pushed ahead on that, said, okay, this is good. And then set it aside and try to figure out what the rest of the game was. Um, and that was miserable. That was... Okay. That was uh, two, like two and a half years before we finally decided what the game was. We tried, you know, six months of work and be like, this isn't working and throw it all out uh, multiple times. We tried like to have a XCOM style city management system where you're, you know, multiple squads, you send out missions and then you have to build the city and then repair the city and it's being attacked and all this sort of stuff. Trying over and over and over again and um, never finding something we liked. And we were about ready to just simply scrap the whole game uh, when we said, okay, last ditch effort, what's fun about this right now? The combat's pretty fun. What if the game is 100% combat? And so that's right. what we did. We just a series of battles in a row and win or, win or lose. Um, Why before did you think it couldn't just be combat? 
Hmm. I think we, we wanted these sort of big decisions to be made, these feelings of progress, this connection with the pilots. We wanted, um, you know, I wanted this time travel story thing to be more prominent and Darkest Dungeon style pilots having trauma from mm -hmm. doing seeing the world be destroyed too many times. And all these sort of things seem to imply a more complicated game where mm -hmm. there's text events and there's... Um, your choice of pilots and mechs and stuff impact the options that you can choose and things that you can do and all that sort of stuff. And so it just, honestly, I probably also wanted to push ourselves and we liked XCOM and we want to make a big game rather than just a simple tiny thing. Um, but all those XCOM, or I'm sure you know about this way more than I do, but like making a 4X game, it feels like you need to have 20 things worked on Going at the same, on the same time, time. Yep. and then they all need to be done, and then you find out, is the game fun or not? Right. Um, and yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, and we have absolutely no idea how to develop that way. Yeah. Um, we All we know is, is this fun right now, and can we tweak it to be a little bit more fun? Like that. So everything we did that wasn't that kind of failed. Yeah. Um, By the way, I just kind of as a side note, um, you know, people kind of think of like the first Civ 1 being kind of like that, like how did Sid make all of these different things, all of these the, these things which you, you needed to make the game fun, and it just all came together. Well, you know, Civ actually wasn't a, lim a lineage. There was this game called Empire mm -hmm. from like the mid '80s, mm -hmm. which basically worked the exact same way Civ did. Civ does. It just doesn't have the tech tree. Mm. It doesn't have the span of human history right. or whatever. It doesn't have cities, but everything else like basically works the same, and. So yeah, there's there's very few games where there's that level of complexity that just pop out of thin air. Sure. You know what I mean? So we could have been going about it the whole wrong way, but we kept looking for things to mimic and things to incorporate from other games and yep. structures. Um, and I'm sure other developers feel the same way. But it just felt like everything we were doing was reinventing the wheel over and over again. We're like, surely someone has solved this problem. Surely right. someone knows how to do this. And we could find no examples of the things that we wanted to do, even in a very simple, basic way, like um, using trying to get into the breach to work on controllers for the Switch. And we're like, okay, a diamond-style grid of tiles where you're selecting units has anyone solved how to do that with a joystick? And when I'm playing all these games, we're like, no, no one has solved this. Like, everyone's disagreeing, and none of them are ideal, and it doesn't feel great. And so it just, you know, even like UI, it just, there's so many things that we feel like, why are, why are we feeling like we're inventing something here? Like, I swear I've seen this before, yet we're not being able to find examples. And so that whole city building stuff was like very much that. It's just like, feelings that we've gotten from combining all these experiences over time and being like, surely that was a game that we played once and then not being able to find it is really frustrating. <laughs> right, right. Because we didn't want to like reinvent the wheel. We never want to like keep making new, new things. Um, it's well, hard. Was there an issue here though in the sense that, you know, you, you presumably you always had the tactical layer. Yeah. And then it sounds like the problem essentially was the strategic layer. Yeah, exactly. Like you're trying to figure out, I mean, so this is a, this is a pretty common problem in game, game development that you have these two games yeah. essentially and they're supposed to fit together. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, I, I found that in general, it's very rare a game will work where the two sides have equal weight. Mm. And like, like that's kind of one of the problems. Usually you need a game either to like, it's really about the strategic layer and the sure. tactical thing is just kind of a side thing sure. or the exact opposite, right? right? Like it's, you know, which is where basically where Into the Breach ended up, right? Yeah. Where it's, it's the games about the tactical layer and then there's just a little bit of strategic wrapping yeah. to like, you know, to connect. My, yeah, like which of these three missions do you want? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Like I, it's, I don't think there's hardly any game that has the same, like the only thing I can think of is like Total War, Basically, mm. but I don't actually think that's a success. Yeah, I, I, I even never play skip the combat. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it exists, and they're both people. I feel like people like one or two, one of the two. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, that's kind of an odd one, right? Because you can literally kind of like do one or the other, or sort of. I mean, I guess you, I guess if you do battles, you have to. I mean, you can play the battles by themselves, but yeah, exactly. It's, it's just it's just really rare. Sure. Right, and so it felt like it, it, it sounds like you were running into this problem. Yeah, absolutely. We. Sid, Sid actually has a term for this. He calls this the covert action rule. Covert action rule. Yeah, there's a game the he game. made. Yeah. Between, like, there was a moment where Sid, like, he could do no wrong, right? Sure. He made Pirates, Railroad Tycoon, Civilization, uh, like, within a five-year span, yeah. right? Um, but in between those games, he made this game called Covert Action, which didn't really quite work out. It was the spy game. Yeah. Um, and he, the, the thing he always points out is that, like, half the game was about the strategic stuff, and half the stuff was about, like, your wiretapping or you're you know doing the, the like the 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 the, uh, the decrypting puzzle or whatever and like you would always lose track of where you are mm. like the game didn't have a center right yeah i mean i'm with you there we came to the same conclusion for sure even while we were still struggling with the strategy layer and we had come to that conclusion already that it just needs to support the combat um even just having it as a supporting role, though, we still failed. Okay. <laughs> uh, over and over again. Like, uh, there was maybe the most interesting was it was the city was just simply four grids of combat, and then time passes, and then things happen, and then you jump into one area to do a combat. And so it's like minimal. It's not no longer giant map where you're moving squads across the map. But even that we failed. Um, so. I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there would have been something there with a different team, but obviously, in retrospect, just focusing on combat was the right call. Yeah. Okay. So you kind of re reset. You you went in on the combat. So what happened here then? Like that was much more straightforward. It was very oh, comparatively, it's very much just like okay, we know what this game is largely, um, and just make it and obviously making games is hard and that took a lot of work and effort but it was much more smooth than the psychological distress of of is this project being cancelled tomorrow type of feeling for years and years um, there was lots of you know minute decisions that were challenging along the way you know how like what type of progression is there in the game how do you win what's What's the scope? Uh, you know that type of stuff, but I don't know how interesting that is. Sure. Um, um, yeah, I mean it's. Uh, I mean, I think we should talk maybe some about the, the tactic stuff, and then we can pull back maybe to like how you did and where you did end up with the metagame. Sure. Right? Because that is still kind of interesting. Um, so you know, we know we talked about predictable combat, right? Or predict, you know, predictable AI, which is a super core part of you know into the breach. Um, like, is there some iteration there that took a while to like? Like, what did you, you know, I guess, what was, talk about that song, basically, if you can. Yeah. Predictive AI combat stuff. Well, 
going into designing the combat, we were kind of trying to solve the things that we disliked about other tactics games. So in short, like things like you were mentioning earlier, um, or maybe before this conversation, um, how XCOM, the leading up to the fight is boring. The, right. yep. the end of the fight where there's one guy left and you need to find him, that's boring. Uh, Fire Emblem, I like in theory, but in practice it's just, you just have one strategy that you do every single time. Right. So we're, we're trying to create a combat that, that avoids all of those things. And so our solution was to have everything that will happen visible at all times. Ideally, everything that will happen and all of your options are visible at all times, um, like in, in FTL, but we couldn't do that so much because the, each mech can have their own abilities. But that feeling of just, I can glance at this, I know what I'm doing, and then now I need to figure out what to do um, was a high priority for us. And so, um, well, one other minor thing with, with puzzle games like we don't, we're not a big fan of when you know what you want to do, like strategy-wise or puzzle-wise, but the execution is kind of annoying. Like right. in Braid, like you've solved what to do, but now you have to actually do it. Mm. Like we wanted to avoid that entirely, right. where um, the execution is just perfect every single time. There's no missed chances, no whatever. All that's super easy. Um, and so all of that ended up in accidentally making a puzzle game out of it. All. Right. Um, and the bat... <laughs> accidentally making a puzzle game, that's interesting. Phrase. Yeah. It's not, it's really not a tactics game in the end. It's a, um, I guess the tactics aspect is if you have to like take some sort of damage or where do you end up standing, like can you think about the next turn and what might, how this turn might affect later turns. So there, there is some tactical stuff in there, but practically speaking, you just, you see a problem and you have tools and how do I solve that? Um, and right. our solution to making that interesting is having all of the weapons that you have access to, basically all, have lots of uses, like lots of ways to use the same thing, whether it's, um, you know, direct damage versus manipulation versus attacking your own units for some reason, or all, like basically having few choices, but having each of those choices have a huge uh, opportunity space, or like, right. uh, that That was um I mean, pushing, high, unit, pushing units around seems to be the most like clear example of that, right? Like, yeah, we found that out. Like that was huge. Yeah, we found that we don't like just pure eliminating enemies as the only mm -hmm. goal or something like that as being interesting. And the manipulating enemies position um, also added to that original goal of um, you're just trying to save the city. Your goal isn't to like run out there and murder everybody. Your goal is to protect the people. And so um, doing no damage but manipulating the position aided that atmosphere and that feeling of the city is what's important. Um, and so we leaned heavily on um, the pushing and such once we found out that the, the um, predictive aiming of the enemies was going to be in the game right. uh, as a primary feature. Yeah. Um, let's talk about undo a little bit. I think that's something I'm yeah. interested in. Um, sure. Um, trying to remember what instigated all this. Like, we, Matt especially, is just very much like, we don't want your decisions to be made by accidents. Sure. Like, we don't want you to feel like you made, um, you, uh, like a 
manual error, like you clicked wrong or whatever, and that punished, ruined your whole game. We just wanted to avoid that if possible. At the same time, we were too afraid to have unlimited undoing everything because there's a lot of times that you feel like there's got to be a right solution, um, but you can't figure it out yet, and then people will be stuck on that and never even end that turn. Um, so we wanted to like avoid this like hyper choice paralysis of like executing a full turn and being like, oh, maybe I could have done that better, and then like hitting reset turn. Um, so the undo move is easy, but the reset turn was a point of contention for a long time. Um, in the end, the way it works in game, if you haven't played it, is any action you do on your turn once per battle, battle is usually four or five turns, uh, you can undo all of your actions in that battle, um, in that turn, sorry. And so what we found when we actually put that in there with the, the single-use aspect, that actually solved all the issues we had at once. We were kind of surprised. Like, I was worried that people would like use it once and then wish it to, there, there to be more, and right. like they just want to keep redoing things. But what actually happened is it became like a resource in itself. Like it, it, the ability to fix your own mistake is like a resource you manage. So you're like, oh, I made a mistake or I misjudged what would happen. Is this worth using it? Right. Um, and it actually just added more interesting choice to the game. And we didn't, I didn't expect that at all. Um, I, I, to me, initially, it was just a Band-Aid over a bigger problem that we didn't know how to solve. And it ended up being actually a pretty cool mechanic in its own right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's um, so with uh, with old world, uh, we added undo, um, and it's just completely open because yeah. it was the simplest way to implement initially. Sure. Um, and you know, initially was just for misclicks. Is also great for debugging. Mm. Um, but you know, we always were like, oh, we might at some point have to go back and add a more complicated system. Mm. Um, but we never did, and players seemed to really like it that way um i mean it you know <laughs> i guess players always want things to be easier and you know more sure. options or whatever but but you know what we found is that it was really useful for um so players didn't have to construct everything in their head yeah you know which could be really really difficult like that that is the kind of the the problem i run into sometimes with into the breach where yeah. i feel like I've had these turns where I'm like, I've just stared at the screen for 10 minutes. Yeah. I haven't done anything because yeah. I'm trying to like, you know, I, I sometimes feel like I need to get, need to get out the graph paper of like, okay, I'm going to be there. And yeah. then this guy's going to go there and this guy's going to there. And, um, you want to think like with your hands and with like exactly. your eyes. And because there's no randomness, like it kind of feels like, you know, I, I, it feels like there, there shouldn't be a reason why the game does let you essentially use it as like a sketch pad. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I do totally under the thing is I totally understand the other side of sure. the, the, the composition because like, again, you want to protect players from themselves. You don't want them to go down this, this rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, and, um, so this is totally not an easy, easy decision. Right. And it's hard to say like, yeah, what's personal the priorities? Yeah. What's, what's, what's the right one at the end of the day? Um, which is what makes, you know, game design so hard. Um, yeah, I I think at the time I was infatuated with the whole having to think through in your head. Like I just liked that. Mm -hmm. That like you you aim with one weapon, you think, where will that enemy be? 
if I do this, and then you aim with another weapon and then move your unit there and think, okay, then that means I would have to be here and aim this. Like, I like that process of thinking in your head. But now, looking back, um, I think I would do what you did. I think I think I would just let you undo everything, step through the entire thing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying I was wrong. Um, it was fine. Uh, or even that it was me making the decision. I don't remember who made these decisions. But I think if it were me now, I would do that Yeah. in I mean, part. I do think it's a more valid decision, the decision you made in your context, because there are there are only three units, yeah. and there's only so many enemies. You only so have like one or two weapons each. Yeah, and... like in, in Old World, you might have 40 orders, and you've right. got 30 units all over the map, and, and our players use it just to even uh, learn. We have, you know, our game has a lot more features, right? Sure. That's just how it is with the 4X game. They'll use it just to figure out, like, what what things do like oh if I make this character a counselor how yeah. will it affect this family's opinion of I'll just go ahead and make them a counselor I see what happens and I, I undo it like the undo is almost part of the the sort of the tooltip system if you will or the the UI right like it's you know the you know we can have places on the UI where they can go to be like okay that'll give me plus 40 and they'll do a math in my head and like sure. here they're just like well I'll just click the button and, and see if it's yeah yeah exactly so I think it is a more valid you know, it makes more sense when you have a you know the smaller options, but, um, but yeah, it's 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 tricky, right? Like, I think I was a bit naive in that the one person who knows the mechanics the most, you know, thinking, oh, these are easy to learn. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, the yeah, I, I do think a lot of players end up every time they reset is a, a turn is. They had just learned something about the game that they didn't know, yep. um, and I, mean, I, I think, misjudged how much that would be. Right. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's you made a game that was just ap when it's when it's too when it's you were at, when the players at the right difficulty level for their ability. Like mm. it's very it's a very very tight game. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the difficult things is that viewed in a vacuum. That's like, okay, that's great. The player is constantly faced with these interesting decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what games are supposed to be. But game design, every time you like you grab one side, oh, what's the right analogy or metaphor? Like every time you grab a hold of one thing, something mm -hmm. else falls away. Because sure. if you're just constantly hitting the player with these like difficult, meaningful, interesting decisions, it's fatiguing. Yeah. You know, like players just get worn out where they're like, I, you know, I feel like I'm always just about to everything's gonna fall apart, you right. know. Um, and sometimes that's okay because that's like that's the aesthetic mm. that you want. Um, but you know, it's hard. There's no there's no one rule that's like okay. The the ideal should always be make the decisions as like tricky as possible, or not tricky, but you know what I mean, like like yeah. as as tight as possible. I guess this comes back to I was just trying to make something that I my that suits my own person or our own personalities, and kind of not worrying about anything else <laughs> just like it, it is guaranteed that this will not appeal to everyone right um and you know i'm just trying not even but i don't know how to design for someone who's not me i have no idea what they want to do sure. well um, you guys you guys hit like some really interesting stuff that i've never seen before right mm -hmm. like the the limited number of turns like i think yeah. i have similar issues with you to most tactics games right but like having like the limited number of turns and that your goal is not to like, it's just to finish the turns, yeah. right? And you have Survive. certain sub goals or whatnot. Yeah. Or whatnot. Like it really pairs down what's important and what the player needs to care about. Um, 
you know, it avoids, like, so many tactics games have the problem of, like, should you even move forward, right? right. Or should you just, like, eh, I'm just going to sit in place and, like, yeah. let someone else move there. Like, yeah, that's yeah. not an issue at all into the breach. And yeah. that's fantastic, right? Yeah, and there's no not a single turn where basically every enemy, well, usually there's not a single turn where every enemy can't offer a threat. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I guess the thing that I like the most about it like I mentioned before, is you're not playing against your image of a of what the computer's thinking of doing. And also, as a developer, that means we don't have to make a smart AI. Like we yes. don't we don't have to make an AI that will compete with your your creativity and your strategic, and also offer predictable strategic like challenges. Like you know, making Starcraft, you you're trying to emulate what a player would do in that situation and then you know they have to react like you do something that scares them they have to react to that or whatever um that just sounds so hard um <laughs> and also even as a player i just kind of i don't i don't love when we're just trying to make people as our opponents i don't find that too interesting yeah yeah i mean you made the ai a game mechanic Right. Yeah, it's something you play with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's you know it's 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 a it's a healthier approach um, because you know like you kind of even going back to FDL like you don't actually want the AIs to play the way another human would anyway. Right? No, it would be terrible. Yeah. Right. So like you just you know the AI should just be another tool in how your how your game works. Yeah, right? just aiding the resulting atmosphere that you're going for or whatever. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, there's there's room for those games, especially if games are multiplayer. You have to operate within that sort of space. But asynchronous, sorry, asymmetrical stuff um, appeals to me way, way more. Yeah. For um, for the strategic layer, to talk about that a little bit, um, like one of the things I think that's really successful about that is that the the game has a really good scope that uh, in terms of how basically how long it lasts, mm. right? Um, in that. You know, I'll never in my life finish a game of XCOM. Right. right. Like that's just sure. that's just reality. Yeah. You, know? you know, maybe when I retire, mm. <laughs> I can go back or whatever. Um, and it's not just that that it's long. It's also it's like it's very opaque about where you are, how far you are in the game. You know, and that's one thing the interbreach is very direct about, right? Yeah. There's a not to just rail on XCOM, but the other thing that like we were trying to avoid is the I didn't have a, I think I had a term for it originally, but the fact that you, you might have lost, but you don't know it yet. Sure. Like, yeah. man, I, I hate that. It's like, what a terrible way to learn mechanics and learn yeah. how to judge whether or not you're doing well. How do you solve that in an XCOM? I have no idea. But um, we were definitely trying to avoid that um, and also to have a scope that's reasonable. So, like, Matt and I have like a sort of disagreement, I guess, about how long the game should be. Okay. Um, like I liked getting near maxed out abilities and complicated weapons and more right. options. And Matt liked it just having the one weapon for each mech and yep. keeping it simple and uh, keeping your mind clear and not complicated. So and he's the one, I assume, who advocated that you could just end the game. At two islands. At, right. Yeah, so, so for those that don't know, there's four islands in the game, uh, you know, like biomes or whatever and then after you do two in any order you can 
end the game there and then, or you can keep going to do the four, full four islands and end it then. And the difficulty of the final level is just scaled to what you are at that point. So there really is no difference of trying to beat it at two or four in terms of like, this is the better way. Um, it's more just a, what do you like to do? <laughs> do, you yeah. like, do you like to go further or not? I couldn't uh, think, I can't think of another game that's done something like that. Like it was hmm. kind of almost, the first time I, I saw it, it kind of weirded, weirded me out. And I'm like, really? I can just end the game? Like almost every game I've seen that maybe is kind of like that, you really need to go all the way, mm. right? You really should. Yeah, yeah. Grind, it, it's right? just, it's just to show you how weak you are. Right, yeah. Uh, Chrono Trigger. Yeah. <laughs> um, although I love the way Chrono Trigger did it. But uh, yeah, I, I, that, that was the result of probably me and Matt disagreeing, I guess. Um, yeah. I don't remember how that originally came up, but we, we kind of were like, well, this is something no one's done, and that's kind of scary, but why shouldn't you just be able to yeah. just say, I'm done? <laughs> yeah, you know, this, how, you, how do you and Matt work together? Because I, I kind of imagine that, you know, you guys are both super heavily involved in the design, and I, I feel like there's almost an inherent problem challenge with a two-person company because a three-person company, if there's ever, like, just complete mm. breakdown and disagreement, like, there is, you know, like, well... Two people think this way, and one people thinks that way, and yeah. you know we'll move forward. But if you're, you know, essentially a fifty-fifty company, like, you know, maybe you guys have a relationship where that's not a problem. But um, it did take us a while, like a like a marriage style, like a while to figure out our own communication styles and what works for us, and like you know having to draw the lines of like when you do this, that makes me feel like this. And, yeah. um, and but once we work through that type of basics. Um, there's not, we're both very flexible and we both don't have like things that are like, this is desperately what I need this to be. So we're both pretty like, if one person feels strongly about some something, um, the other will be like, okay, yeah, we can try it. Um, and very often we have to admit our own mistakes, which is okay. It's just like, that was a bad idea. Sorry, let's open over that. We haven't, we, we are just really lucky that, that our uh, you know, our personalities line up in such that we don't run into too many like direct problems. And or, presumably, but, your gameplay aesthetics, like the things you like at games, right? Because yeah, I mean, you know, two Venn diagrams. Like I, I like a lot of games Matt doesn't, and vice versa. And so our games that we make are usually just whatever crosses over between the yep. two. But even while doing so, like um, you know. I'm keeping trying to put things that I like into it. Like I like I like Ogre Battle, like on Super Nintendo. I like you want to just put Ogre Battle under there. Um and Matt has no interest. But um on in terms of like a role you know definition, you know Matt does all had done all of the coding and um that just means he has more stuff to do that's time consuming. I mean, yeah. I did all the art largely, but in terms of talking about design and stuff, and we're not in production mode, I'm the one playing the game nonstop and testing small stuff. And so that usually, at least with Into the Breach's case, meant I am doing all the weapons balance and adding enemies and coming up with ideas for squads and yada, yada, yada. And then Matt, every once in a while when he um, had time to play test extensively, would be like, uh, this whole area doesn't work, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, we need to cut this section or whatever. Does it kind of work that 
the person who kind of gets sort of the last call is the one who's hands around the keyboard for the thing. Like if you're the one typing in the weapons numbers, right? Like that kind of falls on you. And if he's doing stuff that's the you know the systematic gameplay code, of yeah. like you know bouncing a monster, bouncing the monster here does this. Like, I mean, we we're pretty good at at working within the constraints of what we are t technically able to do. So if Matt says. You know, I have come up with all these ideas I want. He says, that's probably not possible. You know, it's just, okay, it's gone forever. Yeah. Um, in terms of making calls, I don't think it's so clear. I, every once, you know, I will be the one making the calls on the weapons, but he might come in and be like, yo, that, that's a terrible idea. Like, increase the power by one or whatever. And I'll be like, okay. But every once in a while, we'll actually disagree. And that then comes down to convincing the other person and the person who feels strongest probably just lets it stay in the game that way for a while and then eventually we decide and we address it later if what if we like if we actually still finally think it's a good idea or not right okay cool um can you talk some about what you guys are going to do next yeah into the breach came out years ago now and you know we spent a year on localization slash switch and then we spent a year on other issues and so as a small team every minor thing just basically halts development. Um, but we worked on a few prototypes. Um, one game that is really tiny, but theoretically we could release it someday, which might be fun, but we haven't done yet that um, yet. And another game that is kind of in those early days of FTL space of like, it's a prototype um, that is simply fun to play with, but we have no idea how to turn it into a game. Mm -hmm. um, and it's at that sort of bang your head against the wall stage of how do we how do we fix this? Um, yeah, while it's still fun, which is kind of frustrating slash good, I guess. I don't know. Um, but the last year or so, I don't know, six months plus, uh, we were working with Netflix to get into the breach on mobile, mm -hmm. and in doing so. Uh, that means a lot more localization and a lot more UI and, you know, getting it to work on a small screen and all that sort of stuff. But for me personally, the fun side of that is I don't have too much to do with that operations side, so I've just been making content. Um, so been making, um, uh, like I said earlier, the harder mode of the game, which um, is initially mostly for my own enjoyment of testing uh, a whole bunch of mechs and, and enemies and weapons and um, initially, basically immediately after release, I was ready to do advanced edition style like we did with F FTL of um, now that we know what works and what doesn't, yep. uh, what cool stuff can we make kind of mindset. And so I spent, I don't know, months making content and Matt was a, burned out, and B, busy from other things, that we put a hold on it. Six months of doing something else, I come back, I spend six months working on, or a number of months working on new content again. And then, again, we couldn't release it. And so, for years, I kind of had this, like, I, I've done a lot of this stuff. I made these squads, I made these weapons, or whatever. None of it's perfect. But design-wise, it's pretty rare and to go, and it, it's kind of just always been in the back of my head, just sort of you know, thorn in my mind, uh, annoying me that I want to actually just release it and have people's opinions. Especially when I see 
reports of people who like into the breach really mattered to them. Like, you uh -huh. know, this got me through this hard time. I was really sick for a while and I played it every day and it was like, made me feel good. I kind of just want to release this stuff as like, thanks to, um, you know, you like this game so much, here's some more type of thing. Right. It's, it's not too hard for me to come up with more things and, and whatnot. Right. Um, is there a thread to, I mean, you talked about the unfair mode a little yeah. bit. Is there, is there an, another thread to like a theme to what you're trying to bring, a change you're trying to bring into the breach? Initially, when we were actually talking about it being like a big FTL style AE thing, uh, we had like, you know, new islands and I was new, big consequence theoretically to the story and all these sort of things that we wanted to add, all these new mechanics, but that kept getting pared down to what is feasible, what can I make mostly by myself mechanically, what can, um, you know, we do in the time frame that we have with this uh, Netflix deal. And so there is no great theming between it. Basically, the connection between it all is into the breach, I at least was super focused on clean, perfect design. Everything is yeah. balanced, everything's clean and understandable. And with this content, we let go a bit. It's a little bit yeah, okay. it's a little bit more out there, a little bit more enemies that are not hundred percent easy to read visually, maybe, yeah. and but can get crazy complicated things going yeah. on. That's a good that's a good design pattern. It's obviously a lot harder to go the other direction. So Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's a lot easier to do crazy stuff while still being reasonable when you know where the boundaries of reasonable are, for sure. Yep. Um, cool. All right, well, now that we're kind of caught up to the present, um, I also like to ask kind of at the, end, at the end of the podcast, like, why is it that you've dedicated, you know, your professional life to making, making games? Hmm. I don't have a great answer to that. I, I really don't know what else I would do. Yeah. I just think about games all the time, and I can make money by doing so, yeah. so I might as well. <laughs> why, why do you think about games all the time? Um, I think it's an escape. I think um, I'm a not particularly optimistic person, and mm -hmm. picturing how could I make a positive impact in the world gets um, beaten down by the none of it matters type of mindset. Right. And something where games, you know, in games, everything can make sense. Everything has a purpose. It's safe. It's uh, fun. It's challenging, stimulating. All those reasons are just reasons I want to constantly be in thinking about games nonstop and kind of not so much about the world. Um, so I also, it's just, it's just fun just making things and thinking about design and cut and like solving a design problem will be my favorite part of the day. Right. Um, making games in terms of a business, find actually releasing things and doing QA and, and making marketing materials is all just sort of the bitter pill you have to swallow of the reality of making yep. games. Maybe in an ideal world, I would either make board games cause that's just pure mechanics. Right. And, you know, art and stuff, uh, or uh, just make tiny things um, that I'm not uh, too worried about the business side or probably, or, or maybe if I was working in a team where I, that wasn't 
things I ever had to consider. I'm just locked in my little game design land and think about this problem all day. Like maybe that, that, that would be ideal for me. But I honestly can't picture anything else I um, would do that would offer the same amount of fulfillment. And even if I was working on another job, I most certainly would be playing and thinking about and designing games all the time. Well, then it's a good thing you can do it, do it for a living. Yeah, I'm exceptionally fortunate uh, to have the position that I have. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for your time. I think this, uh, this was great. Thank you. I had a cool. great time. Mm -hmm.